Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Alexander Massad, and I will be your host for this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Skepticism is a familiar term to many of us, conjuring up notions of... Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Alexander Massad, and I will be your host for this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Skepticism is a familiar term to many of us, conjuring up notions of doubt, uncertainty, and perhaps even unbelief. Yet skepticism did not always have such a narrow meaning. In fact, skepticism has helped formulate a number of important religious and intellectual positions throughout history. Paul Heck's new book, Skepticism in Classical Islam, is perhaps the first major treatment of skepticism in the Islamic context. This book explores the critical role skepticism played in the development of Islamic theology from the 10th through the 14th centuries. Paul Heck suggests we should not understand skepticism as atheism. Rather, it is the admission that one cannot convincingly demonstrate a truth claim with certainty Islamic scholars such as al-Jahid, al-Amri, al-Ghazali, and even Ibn Taymiyyah acknowledged such impasses only to be inspired to find new ways to resolve the conundrums they faced. In his book, Paul Heck examines the way these thinkers, among others, in classical Islam, face perplexing theological and philosophical questions, all the while walking a fine line between belief in God's message as revealed in the Quran and the power of the mind to discover truths on its own. Seeking to put Islam on the map of the broader study of the history of skepticism, this book will be of interest to scholars and students of religion, history, Islamic studies, and philosophy. Thank you for listening. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Paula Heck. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Alexander Massad, and today we will be talking to Paul Heck, Professor of Islamic Studies in the Department of Theology at Georgetown University and Founding Director of the Study of Religions Across Civilizations. We will be discussing his new book, Skepticism in Classical Islam, Moments of Confusion, published in 2014 by Rutledge Press. Thank you for joining us, Paul, and welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. It's wonderful to have you on. Um, So would you mind beginning by telling us a little about yourself? How did you get interested in the study of Islam? Perhaps some mentors or people who influenced your work? Sure. Well, my first training was in classical studies, Greek and Latin literature, and I did my undergraduate and my graduate master's degree in classical studies, 
my master's was in England, and when I was in England, I became very interested in Islam. There was a lot going on at that time in England related to Islam, the Salman Rushdie affair, uh, Muslims in Britain, uh, British Muslims were standing up and saying, we're citizens, we need to be included in the national vision here. Um, you can't dismiss who we are, our identities. And also, I was living with Muslims in the graduate housing for foreign students. And so it was a whole new window on the world, and I went with it. So it was through friendships uh, with my Muslim colleagues in England uh, in graduate school uh, that I developed an interest in the study of Islam. And for me, that's always been an important part of my studies, the, the friendship aspect of it. Um, you know, I went on to University of Chicago for my doctorate, and then from there to Princeton University, the Society of Fellows, where I did a postdoc, um, and then finally now my current position at Georgetown University. I've had plenty of mentors along the way, wonderful scholars in the field who are very well known, uh, Wadad al-Qadi at Chicago, Fred Donner, um, I spent time studying in Jordan at the University of Jordan, and there Abdulaziz Adouri uh, was a key mentor of mine. And since then, all sorts of wonderful scholars in the field have taken time to to nurture my interests, people like Gerhard Bouvering, uh, John Kelsey, Jane McAuliffe, uh, Sidney Griffith, Andrew Rippin, and a whole host of other people have been great, great mentors and colleagues and friends uh, in the field. Well, great. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us how you became interested in the concept of skepticism and its role in classical Islamic thought. How did that interest lead you into the book? Um, could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I noticed a gap in the field. Um, there's lots of talk about skepticism, the study of the history of skepticism tends to focus on ancient Greece or modern Europe. There's a sense that it was only in ancient Greece that there was real palpable doubt about truths or in modern Europe, uh, as if the medieval period or other civilizations, as if the phenomenon of skepticism didn't exist. So I noticed a gap in the fields. Uh, People have doubts across time, across cultures. Um, so uh, that was an important thing I felt needed to be to be filled because in my in my readings of the classical literature in Islam, there's a whole array a whole array of of evidence pointing to doubt and skepticism. These truths are they uh, really true? These truth claims are they really true? Uh, whether that's in philosophical literature, theological literature, mystical literature. So just the gap in the field that needed to be f filled. But also I think uh, it's an important cultural moment uh, today in American society and across, across the globe. There's just lots of questions today. There's lots of perplexities. There's lots of conundrums. So, so in addition to... Uh, pointing to a gap in the field, I also wanted to uh, raise an issue that speaks to this cultural moment of, of confusion. A lot of people see that there are a lot of different faiths out there. Well, which one is true? Um, so, you know, we have to think about this. 
question of doubt. Uh, does doubt have a purpose? Does doubt have a place in the theological venture? Um, doubt is not simply the end of faith, but in fact it's a spur to deeper uh, insights, uh, deeper understandings. And so I guess I just wanted to uh, show that in Islam too, there is this phenomenon called skepticisms. Uh, you know, uh, there, there, there was in fact particular terminology that scholars used uh, to speak of their confusion, of the contradictions between one position and another. Um, uh, yeah, even their recognition that there are some things they can't know. Um, so uh, all of that led me uh, to, yeah, to put this book together, um, uh, to, to ask more deeply uh, about the purposefulness of doubt. Um, I mean, doubt can, can exist in different ways. Uh, doubt can be existential, right? Someone can doubt the existence of, of truth altogether. Um, but doubt can also be pedagogical or, or methodological, um, right? So I have some doubts about a certain position, uh, but I, then, then I think about it some more. Um, and, and then I come to some certainty. So doubt as a, a stage on the path to certainty. So in addition to the existential doubt, there's also this pedagogical or methodological doubt, I guess maybe more appropriately the methodological doubt, the idea of doubt as a, as a, as a stage on the, on the path to certainty, but also pedagogical. Whereas, uh, you know, if there's a, a, a student who's arrogant and thinks they know nothing, um, you know, you can sow doubts uh, to knock them down, not simply to knock them down, but to help them find a, a deeper methodology, uh, a deeper learning um, in their particular area. So uh, that's another kind of doubt. And then finally, um, there's what I would call a developmental, developmental doubt. Uh, so the idea that, that we have doubts um, about a certain topic, but then the accumulation of those doubts leads to a new framework for thinking um, about that particular issue or about the field as a whole. And so, so doubts actually uh, function to, to push thinking forward. And that's true in scientific thinking, but I would claim that it's also true in theological thinking, that doubts, doubts are not simply uh, static, but they function in this interesting relation with dogmatic assertions. So, so there are these dogmatic assertions that are put out there. This is what we hold as true. But then there are enough truths, uh, excuse me, then there are enough doubts, as it were, to poke, poke holes in that. And then people have to say, well, we need a new vision for thinking about this. So it's not simply in scientific reasoning, but also in theological reasoning, um, that doubts function to help in the development of religious reasoning, new frameworks for theological thinking. And I'm not just saying that because it's all very nice, but that's what the data um, suggests in classical Islam. So when I looked at classical Islam from the, the 9th to the 13th century, looking at various case studies on the phenomenon of doubt, what I noticed is that um, doubt didn't exist uh, solely within one period, but but it actually uh, functioned to push push uh, theological reasoning 
from one period to the next. And so um, that's why I chose to look at the phenomenon over over such a long period to show this developmental side of doubt. So doubt is not simply existential. Some scholar in a particular moment deciding they don't know anything or they can't know anything. And, and doubt is not simply uh, methodological, a, a, a stage on the path to greater certainty. And it's not simply pedagogical, right? I, I raise doubts. I raise difficult conundrums and perplexities for a student who thinks they know it all uh, so that they will find a deeper uh, insight to the field that they're studying, but also this this final developmental doubt or this this skepticism as 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 helping in the development of of religious reasoning. Um, so all of that, I guess, you know, again, it speaks to the gap in the field and also this particular cultural moment where there's a lot of confusion, and I think um, people aren't quite sure what. It's the point of having doubts and where it's all meant to go. Yeah, that's incredibly fascinating. I've, I really found uh, the book to provide kind of a lot of information that's that space that you were talking about, right? The need in the field. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the way that you divided uh, kind of the 9th to the 13th century. You'd mentioned kind of doubt playing various roles uh, in kind of each one of these centuries. And in your, your book, you divide it into four broad chapters covering one or two centuries with a couple of thinkers in each century. So I was wondering if you could tell us how you came up with the division between centuries and why you chose particular thinkers within each time period to epitomize the issue of doubt. Okay, well, um, yeah, I wanted to frame this in terms of the big questions in theology. I guess I should just get that on the table first of all. So this uh, examination of skepticism in classical Islam, it's not about Greek into Arabic. I think a lot of people might be interested in how the heritage of skepticism, um, philosophical skepticism in the Greek philosophical heritage, how it made its way into Arabic with translation and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm not going that way. That's certainly a legitimate project, but this this project is is about questions that Muslims had, theological questions that Muslims had. So I'm looking at skepticism as it functioned within the uh, theology of Islam on its own terms, not how it was translating Greek philosophical skepticism into Arabic. So I guess that needs to be made clear, first of all. Um, so what I'm saying is that there's an integrity to the skepticism of Islam on its own terms. Now, some of their questions would have echoed with questions in other cultures, you know, and in other religions, um, you know, the question of causality is a perennial question, right? What is it that makes things happen? Is there some type of efficient causality in things? Things have natures that make them do certain things? Or is some divine being making everything happen? Now, that's a question that cuts across religious traditions. Um, but I guess I want to just put out there, first of all, that this is really a study of, of theological skepticism, not philosophical skepticism, skepticism that treats the big theological questions in Islam. So 
So first of all, I was just looking at some of the big questions from one century to another. So that's what helped me uh, divide things according to those four chapters that you mentioned. Uh, the first question, which was prominent in a particular period, was the question of whether God has a body, anthropomorphism as it's known. Um, so there, you know, there are things in the Quran that suggest that God has bodily features. So does God have a body? And if God has a body, that suggests that he's spatially limited. And so does God exist in a particular place? But then on the other hand, uh, theological and philosophical reasoning would say that God is everywhere. So suddenly you have a, a contradiction, and that's really the heart of skepticism, the idea that there are two compelling arguments, but they're mutually contradictory. They can't both be true. Uh, so uh, in any event, uh, these big questions um, were there in every period. So if that was the big question in, in the earlier period, the ninth, maybe 10th century, then the next period that I identified, the big question there is the question of other religions. Um, the abode of Islam embraced many religions. Uh, it wasn't simply Muslims, as is well known. And so, you know, in Baghdad in the 10th, 11th century, in the central Islamic lands in general, you had lots of other religions. And so they too could mount arguments in defense of their faith claims, in defense of their truth claims. So, you know, the big question is, which one is true? They all seem to be persuasive. Uh, Christianity has its arguments, and Zoroastrianism has its arguments, and um, uh, Judaism has its arguments, and so on and so forth. So which one is true? You have what was known as the equivalence of argument or the equivalence of evidence. They all seem to be persuasive. So that was a big question in that second period. What about other religions? They, too, seem to be uh, compelling in their own arguments. Um, and then uh, a later period, uh, the big question was uh, causality, but I think it took particular contours in Islam, uh, because if you say that there's an efficient causality to things, um, that things can be explained by philosophical reflection on the nature of things, um, you know, then you have uh, what could be called a quasi-deism, uh, right? So if things operate according to their own nature, then God doesn't have to be involved in the world. Uh, so the big question there in that next period, in that third period covered in the third chapter, was what is the nature of the relationship of God to his creation? Is he in fact, is he in fact actively involved in making everything happen? I mean, an extreme position would be, you know, we're just puppets and he's just moving the strings. Um, or on the other end, has he just created everything according to uh, a system of causality that functions on its own terms, what's often referred to as efficient causality? So then that makes his role uh, unnecessary. And so, again, you have this quasi-deism that God just did, did this stuff and then, and then retreated and is really no longer relevant. So this, of course, raises very important questions for Islam, very challenging questions for Islam. So that would be the third, the third period. Um, and then uh, the fourth period, uh, which is identified with Ibn Taymiyyah in that particular moment in classical Islam, the big question there, I mean, these past questions continued. I don't mean to suggest that, you know, one period resolved the question and then the next period went on to another. 
the questions in the first and the second and the third period and the fourth period, they, they continue today. But just in terms of when when the question was really prominent and when it really emerged on, on the scene as a, as a major conundrum. And so in that fourth period, um, by this point, um, uh, what is often known as philosophical theology had really taken root in the madrasa uh, systems, in the in the scholastic circles, um, and equally there was the rise of mysticism. Um, there was a sense that, well, um, yes, in fact, um, everything is godly, uh, right? It, with mystical insight, you can see that God is behind everything. Um, and this raises difficult questions about the the parameters of religion. Um, what what makes Islam Islam if you're saying that, well, everything is uh, according to God's will or somehow everything reflects uh, divine existence? Does Christianity, does Judaism? Um, and what about these figures who claim that they embody God? And what about philosophers who apply philosophical reasoning, who apply syllogistic reasoning to Scripture and they come up with positions that are contradictory to the plain meaning of the verbal of the of the of the verbal wordings of the verbal expressions the 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 the, the words of scripture um you know so in this in this period you have a lot of questions about about words uh do words represent truth or or can philosophy can philosophical reasoning trump trump the plain sense of scripture and so, you know, this just opens all sorts of questions um, about the parameters of Islam. What, what, are the born, what are the boundaries between Islam and non-Islam if you say that philosophical reasoning can trump scripture? Or if you say that mystical experience can somehow give you insight into the, the oneness of existence, you know, everything is reflecting God. And so, so suddenly there's confusion about where Islam begins and where it ends. So so it was these bigger questions in the theological realm that kind of shaped the, the four-part or the four-chapter structure of the book. I guess I should say, in addition to that, um, you know, you just follow the trace of the trail. Um, you know, the language people use. And I guess this is a very important point to make. Uh, these weren't simply big questions and big uh, conundrums that people had trouble facing, but they actually used precise language to suggest the phenomenon of skepticism. They used terms like haida, confusion. They used terms like takaffa al-adilla, the equivalence of evidence or the equivalence of arguments. They also used the uh, idea of learned ignorance. Um, there's a particular term in Arabic, al-ajiz an al-idraq idraq. So the inability to grasp something is actually a kind of comprehension. And so all of these uh, questions, these bigger th- theological questions, uh, underpinning them was the use of precise language appropriate to skepticism. Um, and so uh, another reason why I chose these figures was because they were using language of a uh, skeptical nature. They were using language that is appropriate to the phenomenon of skepticism.
I found the, uh, yeah, I found your division into these kind of four sections really helpful uh, for me to understand the issues and how they tied in with the people. So I think it was a, a really excellently divided book, uh, really made it really easy to comprehend. So I really, really appreciate that. And thank you for that. Um, I was wondering if you could go into more detail on the particular figures you chose for each section. Um, you mentioned particular terms. Uh, so for example, in your first chapter, you talk about Hayra with Al-Jahid, Al-Takafa uh, Al-Adilla with Al-Amari, Learned Ignorance with Al-Ghazali. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit more how these terms and figures uh, fit into your overall scheme? Sure. Um, now, I mean, these terms themselves are never fixed. Uh, this is an important thing to note, first of all. So the term Hayra, confusion, which might appropriate uh, or might, excuse me, approximate the concept of apureia in, in Greek thought. Um, you know, uh, for, for Jahiz in his moment, uh, Haida was an indication of differing points of view that couldn't be reconciled. Um, in a later period, for example, with uh, the Brethren of Purity and Abu Hassan al-Amari, uh, the concept of Hayra is a function of just having a body, the fact that you have corporeal existence. If you as a human live within the corporeal realm, you're just bound to be confused. You have to, as it were, transcend into the, the metaphysical world in order to be free of confusion. The metaphysical world is the, is the world where truth is one, and that's where you can find certainty. So I guess I should just say that these terms themselves aren't fixed. They mean different things to different authors. And so that's one thing that we need to be sensitive to when we study the history of skepticism, like anything. The terms can shift in their meaning from one thinker to another, from one period to another. Um, now, uh, in the case of Jahiz, Jahiz was concerned uh, about a... Uh, diversity of cacophonous voices within the Ummah. And the key issue was the question of anthropomorphism. So he was very concerned about anthropomorphous scholars. Many of them might have been associated with Ahmed ibn Hanbal, but the phenomenon of anthropomorphism, the idea of saying that God has bodily attributes, the idea that God has a body, that was much broader than just the uh, followers of Ahmed ibn Hanbal. So this is in the ninth century. Uh, there, uh, you had a wide variety of people who uh, espoused the idea that God has a body because it's in Scripture. Now, Excuse me, Jaha's problem with that was that they didn't have a clear methodology. And so they themselves, all these anthropomorphists, they had different views in, in terms of what, what, what it means to say that God has a body. Well, some of them said, well, it's just enough to say God has a body. Uh, others said, well, no, we need to somehow specify that. Uh, God is a circle. God is a square, right? I mean, what form does God's body take? And so if you push them on it, they just divide it into a myriad of positions. 
Now, Ghazali's, excuse me, I keep saying Ghazali, Jaha's concern here um, was for this myriad of theological outlooks within the ummah of his day that made it look like Islam's claim to truth was quite weak. I mean, if Muslims themselves couldn't figure out what the truth of such a basic question is, does God have a body or not, then they would be easy uh, prey, as it were. They would be vulnerable to other uh, religious communities, other scholars from other communities who could easily trip them up in their theological thinking and show them their contradictions, um, you know, especially Christian scholars. Uh, Jahiz seems to be to have a big concern that Christian scholars are going around talking to these anthropomorphist scholars, and it's important to note that these anthropomorphists weren't just the masses. These were scholars that, of the kind of Ahmed ibn Hanbal who were committed to anthropomorphism, um, but uh, then that made them vulnerable to uh, Christian accusations of contradictions. Um, so Jahiz had this concern that these anthropomorphist scholars, his, his his, his, his problem wasn't so much that they were anthropomorphists, but that they didn't have a clear methodology to follow, that they were just reading scripture uh, literally, and well, it says God has a face, and it says God has a hand. Well, God must have those things. Uh, but the point is that they were, as it were, rushing to conclusions, the idea that they were looking before they leap, right? And so, in fact, for Jahiz, this was a teaching moment, a pedagogical moment, it was important for them to not simply have different positions, but to recognize that they didn't have a methodology by which they could adjudicate the different positions within their own ranks. And so for Jahiz, um, Haida, confusion was actually a teaching tool. He wanted to confuse the anthropomorphists, not simply to confuse them because, in his view, they were confused enough with their myriad of positions, but he wanted to show them, he wanted to show them that they didn't have a clear asal, they didn't have a clear method. He wanted to show them that they didn't know what they were talking about. And so he wanted to show them that they needed to, as it were, doubt themselves. Skepticism here. Um, is a methodology, but it's also a pedagogy. So Jah has kind of placed himself in the position of wanting to teach these anthropomorphist scholars um, to show them, to get them to admit that they know nothing. And so to do that, he needed to leave them confused. He needed to ask them all sorts of questions that couldn't be answered. And in that way, they would see that, in fact, they don't know what they're talking about when they say that God has a body. So, so for Jahiz, um, the whole concept of Haida, confusion is geared to his uh, pedagogical purposes in teaching these anthropomorphic scholars, uh, in showing them and getting them to admit that they don't know nothing, uh, so that they can move on from there, as it were. Um, uh, now, it's very interesting because he's taking the whole Kalam uh, venture in a new direction. Us usually with Kalam, the art of disputation, the art of theological disputation, the idea is to uh, show that your position 
is true and the other position, the position of the other person is false. Whereas with Ghazali, uh, excuse me, with Jahiz, I keep saying Ghazali, I hope you can edit that out. Um, with Jahiz, um, his goal is to just show the other people they're methodologically confused. So he isn't trying to show that their position is false per se, but he wants to show them they're methodologically confused. And for him, the bigger issue is what is the relation between our uh, scholarly experiences in the world when we observe nature, when we observe the human condition? What's the relation between our knowledge of the world and our reading of Scripture? As he saw it, these anthropomorphists, they just read Scripture literally, immediately, without any clear methodology. And so that's just going to result in confusion. And then he uses confusion to get them to see that they're confused, right? Um, But in the end, he also wants to show that there is a methodology to be had, namely the way that our mind works in observing nature, in observing the human condition, human society. He wrote about animals. He wrote about human language. He wrote about culture, all those things. The way that our mind works in understanding the knowledge of the world is the same as the way that our mind works in reading scripture, right? And so he's developing over against these anthropomorphists who are confused and need to be increased in their confusion, as it were, to get them to doubt their own beliefs. At the same time, he's working out a an, epistemolo- an epistemology for reading the Quran, uh, a methodology for reading uh, religion um, that's based in some reality that all peoples can recognize. And therefore, he's wanting to develop this epistemology, this methodology, um, which will show other religions, whether Christians or Zoroastrians, uh, that Islam actually has a methodology for critical thinking um, that can be universally recognized and is not somehow some obscurantist thing that, well, we just read our scripture and we say God has a body, but we don't know how. Be lakaif, right? I mean, for Jahiz, this was the height of 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 of, of skepticism. Um, just to say that we don't know, we don't know. And for Jahiz, so of course Jahiz was no skeptic. He saw himself in a battle with people that he would claim were skeptics because in the end, for them, the anthropomorphists, all we can say is that God has a body and we don't know how. Be lakaif. And for him, that was just going to expose the whole ummah to ridicule and to scholarly demise. Uh, so, so for Jahiz... There's a particular way that he understands Haida vis-a-vis the anthropomorphists. They're confused because they're hopelessly divided on what it means to say that God has a body. Uh, and then it's also pedagogical. Uh, I use Haida to knock down these anthropomorphist, anthropomorphist scholars who are arrogant and they think they know the truth. In fact, they have no clear methodology by which to adjudicate the differences in their own ranks. Uh, you know, and then uh, finally, uh, you know, he's trying to develop a new epistemology for theological reasoning, which which is partly related to his own Mu'tazilite convictions, uh, but is also related to the larger cultural moment of the day and the religious pluralism um, 
that that was just pervasive uh, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and so he he particularly uh, wants to uh, align the anthropomorphous in Islam with the Christians it's as a way to kill two birds with one stone. Um, and so, in fact, interestingly, he says that Christians are the source of the greatest confusion. Uh, and by that, he doesn't mean simply that they're going around trying to sow doubts in anthropomorphous scholars in Islam. But what he's saying is that Christians are confused because they too think God has a body. So, as a way, it's, it's his way of, of, of denigrating his Muslim opponents. If you can say that they're really just Christians, right, that these anthropomorphist Muslim scholars, they're just like Christians, well, you've, you've, won, your, you've won your Muslim victory if you, can, if you can say that your Muslim opponents are essentially Christians. Now, should I go on to the next one automatically or? Well, it, I've... Perhaps if we go to um, your third chapter on Al-Ghazali and his okay. notion of learned ignorance, um, and then we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, I, 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 you know, Alex, I tend to talk a long time, so uh, I, I don't know if you guys want to edit or I'll try and I have a tough time keeping it shorter. <laughs> uh, I'll do my best. Um, well, you know, it's, it's all good and we're very interested in your book. And so anything is absolutely great. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. And you guys feel free to do what you need to do in terms of uh, editing and all that. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, when it comes to Ghazali, he does use the terms that we've seen before. He does use the term for confusion, haida. He does use the term for equivalence of evidence, takafa al-adilla. He's concerned about all that stuff. But he wants to use another tool or you could say another arrow in the, uh, you know, in the toolkit of the, uh, well, let me start this again. Hold on a second. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so when it comes to, to, when it comes to Ghazali, um, he definitely refers to confusion in ways that we've seen before, and he definitely refers to the equivalence of evidence in ways we've seen before. But for Ghazali, he wants to use a new tool in the toolbox of skepticism, and uh, it could be termed learned ignorance. He has a particular terminology or phrase for it, uh, the idea that the inability to know is a kind of knowing. Um, so suddenly, ignorance... Uh, becomes purposeful. This idea that I don't know something actually has scholastic value for Ghazali. He uses this particular phrase, al-ajiz anil idrak idrak. The inability to comprehend is actually a kind of comprehension. Now, what's going on with him when he uses this? He's really, as it were, engaging philosophy. By his time, you know, post-Avicenna, philosophy was in the ascendant, philosophy was predominant in scholastic circles, the philo philosophical method. Now, of course, this raised important questions about scripture. Uh, if, if philosophy is the way to truth, then, well, what's the point of scripture? Now, I don't think Ghazali had a lot of problems with that. There's a lot of controversy over Ghazali. Was he a philosopher? Was he a, an Ashari theologian? Um, but I think that, in fact... 
he recognized that the philosophical method itself was faulty, right? He recognized that philosophers, they want to know God, and to know God, they start from creation. They observe creation, they observe the nature of created things, created beings, and they gradually argue from the finite, from the created, they, are, they gradually argue their way up to the infinite, up to the creator. But what Ghazali claimed is that that's actually faulty method philosophically. So I wouldn't suggest that Ghazali is somehow in this big battle of faith versus reason. I think that Ghazali is trying to call out philosophy, is trying to call them out on their own philosophical terms. He's trying to say that what they're doing is actually philosophically impossible. You cannot argue from the finite to the infinite. You just can't do it. There's no way to use an analogy from the finite to get to the infinite. You know, even when I say, well, I know, I have knowledge, God knows, God has knowledge, right? So my knowing and my knowledge is finite, but God's is infinite. Well, Ghazali would say, no, that's, that's actually philosophically inadequate. You can't argue from the finite to the infinite. Maybe that'll give you a certain glimpse into things, but you can never know the reality of God's knowledge or of God's power through analogical reasoning, through some type of analogical reasoning to created finite beings. Okay, so he wants to show that this idea of philosophical analogy is false. So where this takes him is to learned ignorance. The person who's truly learned is the person who realizes there's no way to get from the finite to the infinite. So that means that the person who's truly learned should say, I know nothing about God. Okay? But that itself is an insight. That admission of not knowing is actually an insight or a comprehension into the methodology of learned ignorance. Now, what's the methodology of learned ignorance? Well, rather than starting from the finite and going to the infinite, which Ghazali has shown to be philosophically inadequate, from that, you get the insight from learned ignorance, you get the insight that you should start, in order to know God, you should start from the infinite. That's the only way to know God, is to know God not by analogy to the finite, but to know God on God's own infinite terms. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, again, learned ignorance suggests that I can't know God. That means that God has no definition, no limit. There's no HUD. There's no HUD, no limit to God. God can't be defined, therefore there's no limit, no HUD to God. So that means that God has no limit. Okay, that means, therefore, I should be able to see God directly. So I don't need to go 
through philosophical reasoning. I do, to some extent. I need to go to, through philosophical reasoning to get to the admission that philosophical reasoning is inadequate. I need to go through philosophical reasoning to get to learned ignorance, to get to my learned position that I don't know anything about God through the philosophical method. But then I get to this other method. You could call it mystical philosophy, right? So suddenly philosophy gets me to the point where I see that God is unlimited. And so therefore I see that God is present in all things. Now that doesn't mean pantheism and I don't think it quite means monism. Some research lately has talked about Ghazali in terms of monism. Now there's something to that, but rather um, Ghazali is taking the idea that God created everything. He's taking it to the next step. If, if God created everything, then God keeps everything in existence. So God is with everything. So when I look at the chair or when I look at that dog crossing the street, or when I look at a tree, whatever I look at, I should see it not simply in terms of its own nature, in terms of its own finite nature, in terms of its place in a system of causality that's uh, intrinsic to this world, but whenever I look at everything, from the mosquito to the tree to the sky... I should see God with it, right? So Ghazali uses the image of the sun over the mountains. When I look at the mountains, what am I looking at? I say, oh, you know, uh, how beautiful is the sun um, when I'm actually talking about the mountains? What I'm looking at is the mountains, but of course the sun is shining on all the mountains. So I say, how beautiful are the mountains? but the sun is shining on them. So the same idea Ghazali has is that when we look at something as the sun shining on it, we should think of that's how God is with it, right? So suddenly we move to, um, we move from, from, from physical sight when we look at something to mystical insight. So in that sense, Ghazali says we can begin from God. We can begin from the infinite that somehow with everything. Okay, so so this is this is Ghazali's way of raising questions about the supremacy of philosophy. He's he's drawing upon this tradition of learned ignorance. And again it has its own terminology uh, in Islam, this idea of learned ignorance, as it were, to show that philosophy is limited and it needs to be enhanced by mystical intuition, mystical intuition into the nature of things. And that's what allows us to understand God. We understand God by beginning from the infinite that is with everything, rather than trying to begin from the infinite, or excuse me, rather than trying to begin from the finite and working our way to the infinite, which he's shown is impossible. Now, how, how does this all happen um, it's not simply a matter of one day, oh, it dawns on me that, uh, that there's this mystical insight to be had into everything, and that's what will, as it were, help me know God. And so rather than saying learned ignorance, rather than saying the learned person is the one who knows that he doesn't know anything about God, 
Now, with learned ignorance, the truly learned person says, everything, everything somehow is godly, right? Everything somehow has God with it. Um, everything I see, I see God, okay? So, now, it's not just a matter of waking up one day and having that realization. One has to train. And this is where the Quran comes in, Um it's not so much the contents of the Quran that's important for Ghazali's scholastic vision. Um, again, it's not faith versus reason. It's not scripture versus philosophy. For him, uh, scripture functions to train the mind for, for mystical insight. Scripture exists to train the mind for a mystical insight which will work in tandem with philosophical reasoning to uh, have this, what I would call, a mystical scholasticism, rather than simply a philosophical scholasticism. With Ghazali, you have a mystical scholasticism. But you need scripture. You need the names of God. You need to recite those things. And you need to, as it were, undertake spiritual exercises. And that will train your mind to think in this way, to have this mystical insight, um, which, which again, you know, the idea that, <coughs> uh, excuse me, the idea that everything somehow God is with everything, and so, so Scripture has has its purpose here, um, but but not perhaps in in, in the traditional sense uh, of the content of Scripture, but Scripture actually trains the mind in in getting it to. Um, to look into the next world, right? The, the, the knowledge of the next world is kind of the queen of the sciences uh, for Ghazali. He, he denotes fiqh, or excuse me, he demotes fiqh to a, a worldly science. You know, the, the, the rulings about contract law and all the things that fiqh says about what we should do with our body, Ghazali demotes that to a worldly science. For him, the other worldly science is this elm al-akhirah, the knowledge of the other world, uh, but the Quran and the recitation of the names of God and all these mystical practices that are often associated with Sufism, those are necessary to get you into a epistemological mindset in order to grasp this 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 mystical this mystical reality uh, behind the appearances, the haqiqa that that exists behind the zahir. Right, so we need to be careful about calling Ghazali a, a Sufi. He certainly draws upon the ideas of Sufism, the practices of Sufism, the recollection of the names of God, and so on and so forth. But he's really using all of that to further the philosophical project, to further the philosophical direction, uh, to further the direction of the philosophical project towards towards this mystical, mystical uh, enhanced philosophy. Um, so, you know, Ghazali is, is kind of the classic skeptic uh, in Islam. You know, whenever I would talk to people about my skepticism project, they would immediately say, oh, you mean Ghazali? And I would say, yeah, he's the most prominent one, uh, but he's only one of many. And, and so, again, um, the skepticism here um, is an existential skepticism. And, you know, in Islam, there wasn't any concrete distinct school of skepticism as there was in ancient Greece. Although in the 9th and 10th century, 
there were signs of certain scholars moving in the direction of making a, a distinct school of skepticism, but that never happened in Islam. It never succeeded. No one said, well, they're the Asharis and they're the Mu'tazilis and then they're the, they're the skeptics. Um, there wasn't a definable, clear school of skepticism in Islam. There were individual scholars who moved in that direction. And, uh, and as I said, there was a moment there in the 9th, 10th century where it looked like maybe there would be a, a particular madhab, a particular, a particular school of scholars who, who would claim that, well, you know, we just can't know truth from falsehood. Um, but, you know, the key to understanding skepticism in classical Islam, and in general, I would suggest, is that it's developmental, it's moving us from one frame of thinking, from one frame of knowing, from one frame of inquiry into another one. You know, it's kind of acting to bring about epistemological revolutions. And Ghazali, Ghazali is just the prime example of that. He's moving the paradigm of his day. The regnant paradigm of his day is philosophical scholasticism. Avicenna's way of thinking had triumphed. But that raised serious questions about Islam. But you know, I don't think I don't think Ghazali is so much an apology for Islam. You know, there's all this popular ideas of Ghazali that circulate that, you know, with Ghazali, you know, Ijtihad ended in Islam or independent reasoning ended in Islam. No, that's not the case at all. Uh, you know, there's been important uh, scholarly work done recently to show that he was very committed to philosophy. But I. What, what I want to say is that, that he's also shifting the paradigm of, of philosophical scholasticism. It's kind of now a mystically enhanced philosophical scholasticism. And he's not doing that because it's a battle of faith against reason or he's some type of apology for traditional Islam. He may be in some respects, but he actually has noticed that philosophical reasoning is actually faulty and so he wants to actually save philosophy through this concept of learned ignorance. So with Ghazali, um, as with, with Jahiz at an earlier period, as with the others, they're all drawing heavily on some type of tool in the toolbox of skepticism, some type of skeptical concept, whether it's, whether it's, whether it's uh, confusion or whether it's learned ignorance. Um, and that is helping them, as it were, develop theological reasoning. Now, it never ends, right? Every period, you know, I think uh, a certain amount of inquiry just happens again because things shift and, and we need to rethink things. Uh, you certainly find this in the Christian West. A, a, a same thing happens in theological reasoning. It, it shifts as, as a result of... Of, of concrete developments, and sometimes the developments can be socio-political, sometimes they can be scientific, but every generation, I mean, I think our generation here in America and really across the globe, you know, in this post-Cold War moment, nothing's clear anymore. We're, I would suggest we're in a time of confusion. In the Cold War, everything was clear, and now it's not. And there's all sorts of cacophony and conundrums and perplexities out there. And which religion is true? And we have religious pluralism and we have interreligious dialogue and all these things um, actually are, on the flip side, a kind of confusion, a kind of perplexity, a kind of doubt. And so all of this will, will bring about a paradigm shift. And so 
you know, the things I'm talking about with Jahiz and, and with Ghazali, um, they continued in Islam um, uh, to this very day. Um, and so the idea is that these doubts, um, these skeptical reservations that Ghazali had about philosophy and that led him to learn in ignorance actually were doubts, were skepticism of a developmental kind that, that helped bring about a development in theological reasoning. Well, you've we given think? us a lot to think about. Um, definitely new insight and a new perspective into classical Islamic thought and uh, appreciation for the role doubt can have in advancing theological concepts. But before we go, uh, as we've taken up a lot of your time, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure, yes. Um, so many things, too many things. Uh, this is part of my problem. Um, but I have uh, a particular project now on emotions in Islam uh, or affections or spiritual senses. Um, so if this book that I just finished on skepticism was more about uh, knowing and the challenges of knowing in a scholastic sense, um, this project is now shifting the focus to knowing uh, even theological knowing in an emotional sense. Um, you know, emotions are a big part of our life, uh, irrespective of one's religious affiliation. A lot of our decision-making is a result of our emotional commitments or is the result of our affections, whether our religious affections or our political affections. Uh, a lot of the way we communicate is about our emotions, our, our, our affections, and, and also this idea of spiritual senses, that in addition to physical senses and in addition to emotions, we also have these spiritual senses. Um, so my question is, how were emotions assessed in Islam? Were they uh, seen as a threat um, to uh, religious knowing, that if we get too emotional, right, then our passions will take over and we won't be able to think clearly? Or were uh, emotions actually a way to... Um, be more close to God, as it were? Uh, did our emotions actually uh, function uh, to bring about greater wisdom and greater virtue? We learn from our emotions. Um, were emotions even somehow a motor uh, for us to, uh, to grow closer to God? Um, you know, our joys and our sorrows, are, are those joys and sorrows, are those emotions a way uh, to draw closer to God? So so, so that's my, my current project. It's a big project, and I just need time, as, as always. Um, I was able to give a presentation last March on the concept of sorrow at a conference in the New York University in Abu Dhabi, the concept of chuzen in Islam. And so I want to just keep going with that. But, yes, that's my current project is... Emotions in Islam, how are they assessed? But particularly, how are they assessed in relation to the purposes of Islam? What's the theological value of emotions? And so that's my current project. That sounds great. And we look forward to that work coming out and also look forward to talking to you soon, perhaps, when that work comes out and doing another interview. So thank you. Yeah, sorry. Thank you for joining us. 
And we look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. It'll be a pleasure, Alex.